So find Mark 11 in your Bible if you want to go through that on your device. Some of you are taking notes. I appreciate the feedback on how this is helping you understand God's Word better. Here's a fast fact. Did you know that the chapter numbers, the verse numbers, and all of the section headings that you have in your Bible were not really there once upon a time? I don't know if you knew that. But Mark's not running along writing this, and he says, okay, that's a good way to end a chapter. Now let's start chapter 11. That's, that's not Mark doing that. But I do want you to know that at Mark 11, he is already saying, okay, now I need to tell you another part of this story. Because he has given us the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ leading up to this point where they stand on the edge of Jerusalem. And this is where the events of Jesus' final time, and I don't want to say His time on earth, because there is no such thing, but of His days on earth before the crucifixion, it's where it begins, is in chapter 11. And then we're leading to this uh, moment of the crucifixion, the resurrection, His appearance, that will be what is on everybody's mind and heart in a couple of weeks. And so I want to encourage you to take that opportunity and invite your friends and family to be here on April 8th or April 9th uh, for that. But know that it begins here. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, as we move into this Word, we want to thank You. We want to thank You that we have this Word. That You entrusted to us a message that reminds us of what's true, that orients us to what You are doing. You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Son, through His words, and in His Spirit. And Father, I pray that we'll never take this for granted, but that we will come to know and cherish this, this truth-centering message, this all-important account of history once again, and that we'll do so day by day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This material is different, and one of the things you're going to see is a difference in the way that, that certain things are, are brought up. We're, we've, been, we've seen parables and miracle stories, but now... If you watch carefully and closely, and by the way, those of you who are taking notes, those of you who uh, want to keep a record of this, I'm going to tell you what to look for as we go through this text. We're going to fly over it pretty quick, but I want you to look for signs and symbols. You're going to see a colt of a donkey. You're going to see a fig tree. You're going to see something about a vineyard. You're going to hear talk of stones, and you're going to see a lot of coins, just like these coins that were put up in these little buckets here by the children. There's going to be coins. They're going to be everywhere. In this, uh, in this set of, of accounts that we have here now. And then there's going to be more references to Scripture than what we're used to. It's going to be calling back those Scriptures. This is why it matters to know what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible because that was the Bible that Jesus had. That was the Bible of the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jerusalem temple. And this is what Jesus spoke to them. So that when, when he had some of these dialogues and, and debates. But all of these scriptures and all of these signs and symbols are pointing towards the Messiah 
and the dominion of God. And if there's any doubt that He is the Messiah, it's becoming clearer and clearer now. You know, He's held on to it as a secret and said, you're right, Peter, when you confess that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Well, now the secret's about to get out. Let's take a look at God's Word. When Jesus and His followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, Its Lord needs it. And He will send it back right away. And they went and they found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, And they untied it. And some people standing around said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them just what Jesus had said. And they left them alone. And they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their clothes upon it. And He sat on it. And many people spread out their clothes on the field, their coats, while others spread out branches cut from the fields. Those in front of Him and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming dominion of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around at everything, but because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And from far away, he noticed a fig tree, and it was in leaf. And so he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. And so he said to it, no one will ever again eat your fruit. And his disciples heard this. They came into Jerusalem, and after entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there, and he pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves And he didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. Hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've turned it into a hideout for crooks. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this. They tried to find a way to destroy him. And they regarded him as dangerous. Because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. And when it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. Early in the morning, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they saw the fig tree, but now withered from the root up. And Peter remembered this and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look how the fig tree that you cursed is dried up. And Jesus responded to them, Have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't waver, but believes what is said will will really happen, it will happen. Therefore I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it, and it will be so for you. And whenever you stand to pray, wherever you stand to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive your wrongdoings. Jesus and His disciples entered Jerusalem again. And as He was walking around the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the legal experts, and the elders came to Him and they asked, What kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? 
So Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. Give me an answer, and I'll tell you what kind of authority I have for doing these things. Question. Was John's baptism of heavenly or human origin? Answer me this. They discussed it among themselves. Now, if we say it's of heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, who all thought that John was a prophet. So, they finally answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus replied, then neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have for doing these things. Now here's what we've just flown over. We start out with this interaction, the preparation to go into the holy city of Jerusalem. And, and if, if, if you don't realize this, if all these names kind of sound the same, you've got Jericho's, Jerusalem's, Capernaum's, Nazareth's, uh, Jerusalem is by far the most important city. It is the royal hub. It is more than just the capital or the seat of government because the king resides in Jerusalem, or historically the king did. This is the city of David. This is a fortified city. And this is the city where the temple is. That's where God gets his mail, is at the temple, okay? If you send a letter to God in those days, it's going to the temple. That's the address. All right? God is there. The ark is there. The presence of God is there. So important. And the reason why it's so important for them is because if that temple is there, and if the people working in the temple are doing what they're supposed to be doing, then all of our sins get atoned for. Now, can you imagine that? What it would be like for us to be coming together here today and we're all coming together to pray and we're all coming together to do uh, study in God's Word. But meanwhile, in a city far away from us, there are a group of attendants who are specially tasked with making an offering to our Creator God to atone for our sins. And we have to trust that they're doing this the way they're supposed to. Because if they mess up, or if something goes wrong in that temple, why, all of a sudden, we're all in a bad shape. You know, you think about that, church. We get anxious and upset and irritated when the internet goes out. You get on a plane, and you didn't even know that that plane was equipped with Wi-Fi, and then they tell you, this plane is equipped with Wi-Fi, but sadly, it's not working today. Oh, man! There goes everything. Trip's ruined. I can't go look at TikTok now. Can't keep up. Mm. That's stuff that we can live without and we get so upset about it. Can you imagine not having the temple that atones for our sins and is meant to be the center of salvation for all humanity? Now this is what's going on in the background as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So he's got to get ready for this. He gets the colt. Why a colt? Why does it matter? Why not ride in on a war horse? Because Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Kings always participate in the world of symbols. Uh, as Charles III is going to be crowned King of uh, United Kingdom in May, why don't they just, you know, say that? Why don't they just, you know, just give him a little card or something like that, a little badge? Here you go. Chucky the Three, you're king. All right. Good deal. No, you have to have all the symbols. You have to sit in this special chair, wearing this special robe, going to this special place. Why? Because that's the way it's always been done. It's expected. Jesus has read Zechariah. It is expected that Jerusalem's king will come not on a war horse, but humble on a donkey. Side point, Zechariah is one of the most overlooked and neglected scriptures in the Old Testament. I encourage you, if you're, saying, if you're thinking, what can I read? Read Zechariah. Okay? It'll, it'll be a little different, but read it. Because there's so much there that matters for what happens in the life of Jesus. Now, here he comes, and how do they respond? They do what Psalm 118 says. Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Save us now. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. And with bows in hand, that's the, that's the palm branches, the, the branches of the trees, join in the festal procession. They're making like a carpet to smooth out, to prepare his way. How did Mark's gospel start out? A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What we see going on right here, the other part of the A material, is this celebration, this Hosanna. They're doing exactly what Psalm is saying. Mark is centering us and saying, do you see what's happening here? As he comes into Jerusalem, he's saying, he's underlining, this is it. This is the Messiah coming to Jerusalem, just like it was expected. Then we get into two little... Um, triads or two little uh, sandwiches if you want to think of them like that the B material and the C material with some some information in the middle on the B material we have this little episode where he's riding into Jerusalem and sees a fig tree thinking man I'd really like a fig right now there's no figs on the tree so he has a little lament for the tree and he says man no one will ever eat from you again then he goes into the temple does something then he comes back and Peter remembers this and he says look it's all dried up a lot of people like to criticize Jesus for this. Kind of like, well, Jesus, that, you just, you know, he was hangry and he got mad at that tree. Shouldn't have done that. It just wasn't right. That little tree never did anything to him. Why didn't he just make figs appear on it? Well, that's because you're missing the point. Look at the, look at the information in the middle. What does he do in between the two fig episodes? He goes to the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, that place where we expect the people to be doing what God has tasked them to do so that our sins are forgiven. And what are they doing? They're turning it into a bank. They're turning it into an enterprise. They're turning it into a game, a rigged system. Why are there money changers there? Well, you know, we're going to find out Caesar's image is on a coin and we can't have no idolatrous imagery in the temple, so you got to give us your dirty Caesar money so that we can give you some clean, acceptable money to use in the temple. And furthermore, you need to make sure that the offering that you're given 
is, is acceptable. I mean, we don't want to be giving God garbage because if we do that, then this whole system is going to go off the rails. They have become bureaucrats. This is sort of a, a spiritual internal revenue service, making sure that everything is audited and everything is taken care of, and we can't have poor people coming in giving old ratty doves to God, like God really needs doves of any sort. It's the faith. It's the dedication. It's the, it's the sacrifice to God that counts and the heart that makes that sacrifice. But they've got this system running and Jesus sees it and He says, this, this is not good. The reason why doves are mentioned is because that was the sacrifice allowed for the poor. They don't own sheep. They don't own lambs. They, don't, they certainly don't have bulls. They've made this difficult for the Gentiles, for the poor to come into the temple. And Jesus says, what was it that God always had as a vision? That my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Not just you, Israel. Not just Jerusalem. But all nations. And here you've turned it into a, a crooked, money-making scam of a deal. The fig tree represents that temple system. The fig tree represents that broken system. Looks good on the outside. It's putting out leaves ahead of the season, which is pretty encouraging. It's like, hey, we might just have figs a little early. But when you get up close and inspect it, no figs. It's dry. It's dead. It may look alive, but it's dead. This is why he says to Peter, have faith in God. Jesus is not giving Peter the secrets to rig the game for your prayers. You mean if I have faith, Jesus, I can do superpowers? I could go up to the Empire State Building and say, be lifted up and fall into the Hudson River. No. No. That's not what he's teaching. How that would glorify God is beyond me. I, I don't know. But again, we're always looking for the gimmick. And that's what they were doing in the temple. We're always looking for the, for the edge, for the cheat code, for the secret. How do I do it? If I, I'm going to believe. I'm going to clap my hands because I believe in fairies and Tinkerbell's going to come back to life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're worried about this fig tree. We're so concerned and invested in this Jerusalem system that you've got going on here. He says, you need to trust in the God who provides all things for us, and if you really believe He's doing what He's doing, then if you were to say something as bold as mountain be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and that was part of what God intended, it would happen. See, we're not gaming God. We're not rigging God to do whatever we want. We're learning to pray in His will. And notice that the follow-up to that then is not... Oh yeah, Jesus, we want to unload some mountains. By the way, the breakup of that mountain was also one of the things that was expected when the Lord comes back. So praying for a mountain to be thrown into a sea is praying for the Messiah to come. That's what that means. But it also means, he says, wherever you stand, you pray and you forgive those that you need to forgive so that your wrongdoing may be forgiven. In other words... That system, that Jerusalem system, it's right here. It's me and you. 
That means that when we pray for forgiveness, we have to believe that that forgiveness is given. And we have to extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus is saying that what is carried out in that Jerusalem system is not meant to be what's on the outside like a bunch of leaves, but the fruit of it. The fruit of it should be the new community of God's people. The spiritual Israel, that's us. Yeah. That means that we really, we don't have to worry about all of that over here, but we do need to be focused on what goes on among us. Otherwise, we might end up just playing a game just like them in Jerusalem. I showed up on Sunday, I said my prayers, I listened to a sermon that was way too long, and I took my communion, so I'm good. Game, 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 game. Now God's got to give me that car that I want. That's a game. And Jesus is saying, God has no time for that. That's not the reason I'm here. You're just a fruitless fig tree at that point. So here come the, this is our other sandwich, the the ones who manage that system. By what authority are you doing all of this? Oh, you want me to show you my papers. Okay, but first I get to ask the question. I'm the one here in the temple. Let's talk about John's baptism. He gives them their own kind of question, which is a set-up question. They know. They see the trap. They know that there's no good answer. So they choose C. We don't know. And he says, then I'm not going to answer. Jesus isn't playing games. He's revealing to them that he knows what's up. Because whatever answer I give you, if I say, I have this authority by God, you'll say, no, you don't. And if I say, well, I have this authority because I'm here occupying the temple, well, then you're a bandit and a traitor. He knows that it doesn't make any difference what he says. They're trying to trap him. Which then takes us into Mark 12, and you're going to see more of that. Let's read again, okay? Jesus began to speak to the people in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower. And then he leased it to some tenant farmers, and he went on a journey. In time, the man who built all of this sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, the man sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head, and they treated him disgracefully. And he sent another one, and that one they killed. And the man sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the man had one son whom he loved dearly, and he sent the son last. He was reasoning, surely they'll respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So now, says Jesus, what will the master of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. The religious leaders looked for a way to seize Jesus because they knew that he had told the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away. Now they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him. They trap him in his words. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and you don't show any favoritism. You don't worry about what people think about you, so... You really teach us God's way as it really is. 
Yeah, I'm not buying it either, and neither should you. So our question for you is this. Is it permitted to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not pay taxes? We're going to get to that in a second, but that's a clever question. Recognizing their trickery, Jesus said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. They brought him a coin. He said, Whose image and inscription is this on this coin? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, Well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. They were stunned, speechless. Now along come the Sadducees, and they deny that there's a resurrection, and they question Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up children for the brother. And suppose, suppose there were seven brothers, and the first one married a woman, and when he died, he left no children. And the second married her and died without leaving any children. And the third did the same, and none of the seven left her any children. Finally, the woman died. So, in the resurrection, when they all rise, whose wife will she be? Because all seven were married to her. Jesus countered. Isn't this the reason that you're so deluded? Because you don't know the Scriptures or the power and work of God. When people rise from the dead, they won't need to marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Rather, they'll be like God's angels, meaning eternal. Yet about the resurrection from the dead, haven't you read in the scroll from Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are seriously deluded. One of the scribes heard their dispute, saw how well Jesus answered them, and he came over and asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. No, no other commandment is greater than these. And the scribe, that scribe, said to him, Yes, teacher, I agree. You have rightly said that God is one and there is no other beside him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than any type of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered with insight, Jesus said to him, You are not far away from God's dominion. After that, no one attempted to question Jesus. And while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, he asked a question, Why is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is David's son? David himself in the Holy Spirit said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I turn your enemies into your footstool. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be David's son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he was teaching, he said, watch out for the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who consume widows' homes. They prattle on at length in their prayers, but they will be judged most harshly. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury, and he watched how the crowd gave their money, and many of the rich ones were throwing in lots of money. Yet one poor widow came up and put in two small copper coins worth less than a cent. 
And Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I promise you that this poor widow has put in more than anyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change, out of their abundance. But she has given, despite her poverty, she has given everything that she had, the whole of what she had to live on. Here's what's going on here. This is Jesus' judgment, the beginning of His judgment on that broken temple system, which ends with that visual image of this poor widow who thinks that for her sins to be forgiven, for her to have a hope in eternity, she has to put away everything that she has to live on into that temple treasury to support that system. Otherwise, God doesn't care about her. That's why that's happening. He starts off with this parable of the vineyard where this man sets this up. He sets it up so it'll be a good thing so that you can have a vineyard that will produce good wine and he leases it out to these tenant farmers who will do the work. The vineyard is the temple, it's Jerusalem, it's Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servant and the son are all the prophets who came to correct them to get things in line and to say, where's the fruit from all of this? And finally, it's Jesus himself. And the owner is the Lord. And what he's going to do is judgment. And Jesus says, this fits because Psalm 118, the same psalm that they were singing Hosanna to, is also the one that speaks of the stone that was rejected by the builders that has now become the cornerstone. That which is rejected is that which was true and right. And then after that parable, and they get it, the leaders know what the parable means. It's a judgment on them. Four questions. A question on taxes to Caesar. It's a trap question because no matter how Jesus answers on their terms, oh yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar. Well then he's a traitor. He's a traitor to his own people because the tax is oppressive and it's not right. Oh, well then, yeah, yeah, well don't. Don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well now you're guilty of treason because Caesar runs things around here and he doesn't like people saying stuff like that. Jesus says the whole problem is what he mentioned to Peter when he rebuked him. And he said in Mark 8, 33, Peter, you're thinking the things of men, not the things of God. You get so worried about this tax stuff, that's the things of Caesar. Give God the things of God. The second question, the question of the resurrection, that's the Sadducees' pet question. Everybody's shown up to test Jesus today. None of them practice this Levite, this Levitical rule of marriage where you have to give the, the widow a, a child. They're just making a joke of the whole thing. The question is absurd. It's not a serious question. They want to create such a mess there that they say, well, now whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection, Jesus? That's like critics who come and say, hey, is God so all-powerful, can he create a rock that even he can't lift? See how that question plays into it? It's not a serious question, though. At best, it's just a paradox, a conundrum. But often, critics like to point these things out just so that they can say, see, you can't even answer these silly questions because there is no God, there is no resurrection, there are no angels. Sadducees believed in God, but that was about it. Jesus just takes the opportunity to say, I'm not playing your game. You're testing me, and this is why you don't understand Scripture. You don't understand what God is at work doing. You don't understand. You're, you're using categories that don't fit to apply 
to realities that should be clear to you. You're deluded by your own presumptions. Finally, the question about the greatest commandment. One scribe sees it. He gets it. So don't, we can't knock on them too much. Even they recognize the truth. This scribe says, I want to know from you now. I want to know the question you're supposed to ask every rabbi. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. I agree with you, Jesus. Jesus says, that's good, because now you're really close to the dominion of God. Finally, Jesus himself provides the fourth question when he says, how is it the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, Jesus can make that claim. But to say he's the son of David means that he's nothing more than a king on a throne. That's why they like to talk about the Messiah being the new political, military ruler. But Jesus is saying, again, they're looking at the wrong thing. David is saying this is even a higher step up than just the successor king of Jerusalem. He says David himself recognizes that the Lord is his Lord. This is why Jesus will identify himself as the Son of God or the Son of Man who is the figure that shows up to judge the earth. Jesus is interpreting Psalm 110. Jesus is doing all this to warn them. He said, you can either participate in the fruitless system of the scribes. It may look good. It's got all the pretty robes. It's got all the pretty dressing. But there's no fruit. There's no benefit. They're not going to share the wine with you. They're not going to share the salvation with you. They're going to be just like those tenants in the parable. They're going to play games like these Pharisees, these Herodians, and these Sadducees. They're going to play games with Scripture. Or you can be like that faithful widow. She may not know that the king of creation is standing next to her. She may not know at that time that the Son of Man is there and that the dominion of God is that close to her. But what she does know is that she has a Creator and she's going to be faithful to Him. And unfortunately, the system that these scribes have given her consume her life instead of enriching it, instead of giving her hope. Now we, as God's people, are just like His disciples. We have to decide, are we going to participate in a fruitless system that just keeps turning the hamster wheel over and over again and We've got some pretty trees, but we've got no fruit that will feed anyone. Are we going to be like the faithful widow and realize that we can go straight to God and if we will devote ourselves and give our all to Him, we will not lose anything. But like Jesus told His disciples, no one who takes up His cross, no one who gives His life for me and my good news is going to lose it. In fact, you'll gain it. Let's keep that in mind. Next week, we're going to continue what Jesus says about this, but it's pressing us to make decisions. Know this, that we're invited to come to His table. And in coming to this table, He is sharing the fruit of salvation with us today. And it's right that we share it with one another. Would you pray with me? Father, may we have the faith of that widow who, unlike scribes or 
Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees. Her only desire was to be obedient and to put her trust in you. Father, we want to put our trust in you so that we not only have a message of hope to share with others, but we can live out that hope despite the circumstances that we may find ourselves in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that Jesus brings us. We ask that we would align ourselves to the cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected, but the one who has become the rule and standard for all of us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.